Let's uh, get back to our studies in the Gospel of John this morning. We're in chapter 15. John chapter 15. want to read through the first 17 verses. John 15, reading from verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it might bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you, that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain. That whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. These things I command you, that ye love one another. Our blessed God and heavenly Father, we come before thy throne of grace to ascribe glory and dominion and honor and power unto you to recognize and confess you as the one true sovereign of heaven and earth, the glorious creator of all things, the one for whom nothing is too hard. And so we worship you and give you adoration and look to you for the grace and the blessing that we need this day for all things, for we cannot even draw a breath apart from uh, your power upholding and sustaining our lives. But we pray especially for those spiritual blessings, uh, the encouragement and the help, the instruction and rebuke that we need as we, uh, as we go along in our pilgrimage and which can come from your word, if you will bless it through the uh, powerful operations of your Holy Spirit. For otherwise, Lord, except, we, uh, except your Spirit does help and give power to the minister and grace to the hearers, uh, we will simply be going through the motions and no good at all be done. But we pray that that would not be the case but that we would be able to retain the things that we hear and know how to make application of them in the circumstances that you have uh, arranged in our lives. Lord, help us to remember that the things that we are doing here today, that it is of the very most serious nature, is more serious than uh, being able to pay our bills or having food on the table or even those things that uh, occupy so much of our time and attention. For we know that your word says that the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment And if we have any sense at all, we do not want to be numbered among those who are ungodly, which is simply those who reject your word and refuse to walk in it and to obey it and to look to you in faith and to believe your word. Please have mercy, Lord. Have mercy upon those who are still in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. 
release them and give them freedom in Christ through faith in Him and in the sacrifice that He made for sinners. And those of us who do know you, I pray that we would receive blessing and help from your word as we look in at this day, both in the morning and in the afternoon hours. And we pray the same blessing for all of your congregations, Lord, that the name of Christ might be greatly honored wherever he is being preached, that your people would be protected from error and much light given to them, and that we would be strengthened and refreshed to serve you and to be the salt and light that you have appointed us to be in the midst of a uh, very crook, uh, crooked and corrupt generation. Now we pray that you would sanctify us through thy truth, for thy word is truth. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> the first 17 verses of this chapter that we read at the outset constitute perhaps the greatest section in all of Scripture on the great subject of vital union with Christ. We have made the distinction a number of times uh, in working our way through the first uh, nine verses of chapter 15 so far. We've made the distinction between judicial union and vital union. I don't want to elaborate on that very much, but just to remind you that by judicial union we refer to the great act of God, nothing that we ourselves do and not even necessarily anything that we feel or experience personally. But by judicial union, we are united with the Lord Jesus Christ so that his death is our death. That's how our sin is taken care of. His resurrection is our resurrection. His life is our life. Our justification, our standing with God, our eternal security are all embodied in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's judicial union with Christ. That's the kind of union you will read about in uh, the book of Romans, the doctrinal section of that, and in Ephesians chapter 2 and, and other places as well. But here in chapter 15 of John, we're talking about a different type of union, and that is the vital union, which does have much to do with our experience and with our sanctification. And this teaches that we do have a spiritual life that we did not generate of ourselves. We didn't create it by making a decision to believe in Christ, but we believed in Christ because God gave us life. This life that we have and which we live in the Spirit was given to us by God. We didn't create it and we do not sustain it or nourish it. The branch that grows out of the vine does not decide to grow itself, but it grows because it springs out of a living vine. It receives life from the vine. And it doesn't keep itself alive, but it continues to draw all of its nourishment of life from the vine. But still, it is alive and it is active and it buds and blossoms and bears fruit and that is the way it is with the Christian. We are connected to the Lord Jesus Christ, the living vine. And if we are truly in Him, we are going to be bearing fruit unto God because we are connected to Him. Disconnect us from Him and we will wither away quite quickly. For as he said in verse 5, apart from Him we can do nothing. And above all, while we may be able to live the motions of a physical life, we certainly, apart from Christ, cannot do that which God calls upon his people to do, which is to bear fruit unto his glory. But when we are living in communion with Christ, this vital union, union that he is describing and elaborating on here, when we are drawing the resources of our spiritual strength from him, we can bring forth much fruit. And it is only through this means that we glorify God. Believers who are bearing fruit unto God, and there are no believers who are not bearing fruit. There are believers who bear more fruit than others. Christ in the parable of the soils talked about 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold hearers of the word. So some believers are more fruitful than others, but there is no such thing as a believer who has no fruit. It is by this fruit-bearing process that we glorify God. 
not through the mere strength of personal effort, although sanctification does require very strenuous personal effort, but it is through living by the spiritual life imparted to us by Christ and sustained in us by His power through the life of the true vine. And our responsibility, as we saw the last time we were here in verse 9, our responsibility is to continue in His love, to abide in His love, for it is by the continuing operation of His love in us that fruit will be born unto God. And as we take up today in verse 10, we are still on the subject of love. He closed, or we closed last time uh, with verse 9 where he says that as the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you, and then the admonition to continue in his love. So he says in that very amazing statement that he loves us as the Father loved him. Much more depth than that than we are able to even start to comprehend. But he goes on to tell us that we should continue in that great love. And we know, of course, that we are not able to love our Lord and Savior in the same eternal, infinite way that the Father loved Him and as He has loved us. But through this teaching, we do see that there is a real value and a practical blessing in our love toward Him. He has told us to continue in His love, and now He tells us in verse 10 that if we keep His commandments, we will abide. By the way, that word abide here is the same word that is uh, translated as continue in verse 9. The uh, translator's Uh, just chose at their own whim or their own discretion maybe would be a better word Uh, they would render the same Greek word either abide or continue according to the way that they felt that it should be offered but it's the same Greek word and has the same meaning we will abide or continue in his love if we keep his commandments so this there is a promise here of tremendous value which we dare not disregard if we treasure the love of Christ at all Now, he already said much to the same effect back in chapter 14. If you look at verses 23 and 24, he tells us, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings. So you see the direct connection between love and obedience. The manifestation of our love for Christ is not the way that we feel about him or how loud we sing or anything like that, but it is our obedience to his commands. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, And he goes on to say that the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's which has sent me. And he brings in this same truth again to teach us the necessity of obedience for the purpose of perseverance and assurance. Our obedience is never for the purpose of earning merit with God or of uh, of contributing to our salvation. Salvation is completely the work of God alone. We didn't do anything to purchase it or earn it. That's God's work. But for the purposes of perseverance and assurance... There is much that we need to be doing in this realm of sanctification. So by no means does he prescribe our obedience as a way either of saving ourselves or of keeping ourselves saved. Even our very keeping is according to the power of God, according to Peter, first chapter of his first epistle. Salvation is of grace and grace alone from beginning to end. But what we have to recognize is that God has an end that he is working about, uh, working out, but he always has means that lead to that end. So God uses means both in saving us and in keeping us saved. God appointed salvation. He appointed a certain people to salvation before he ever created the world, but he didn't just let the world run its course and then bring those people to heaven. He had to use the means to have them saved, and that was to send his son into the world to deal with the sin problem have him suffer the horrible death of crucifixion and be raised from the dead, ascend back into glory, intercede for us. 
All of those are the means that God uses to the ultimate end and outcome of our salvation. But God also uses means in keeping us saved and preserving us and granting us grace to persevere. And that is through uniting us to Christ spiritually so that we live by His strength. We live a spiritual life because Christ lives in us. If you have a desire to know the Lord, if you have a desire to walk with the Lord and to be obedient to Him, that's because the life of Christ is living in you. By love towards Christ and obedience to Him, we persevere in the faith according to His working that works in us mightily. Now it's important to see here also that our sense of assurance is directly connected to our obedience. I think every Christian can attest that it is when we are most fully... Let me start over again, or I'm going to say it wrong and leave the wrong idea. It is when we are uh, being most obedient to Christ that we enjoy the fullest consciousness of our interest in His redeeming love. When we are walking in obedience out of a sense of holy gratitude towards the Lord, that's when we enjoy the most assurance. On the other hand, when are we filled with the greatest darkness and gloom and fear? Is it not when we have sinned and are not walking in fellowship with the Lord? Now, if you don't agree to that, then I would say that it's probably because your theology has gone horribly awry in an antinomian direction. If you're walking in disobedience to Christ, living in rebellion to God's commandments, but you're still completely confident that you're okay with God, that's not a sense that you have... That, that doesn't indicate that you have a viable assurance. What that indicates is that you have a false confidence. If you're living in sin and still confident that the grace of God is with you and has saved you, that's a false confidence. Sin should cause the true believer to go back to Christ to his cross to wash the sins away in the blood of Christ and to plead for grace to leave that sin behind, to mortify it, to put it to death. So our obedience is directly connected with our assurance. The more strictly we obey our Lord, the more closely we are walking with him in obedience, the greater assurance of our salvation we will enjoy. Obedience is also the mark of the reality of faith, which is more or less the same uh, different way of saying the same thing. You remember how in 1 John 2 and verse 3, a passage that we refer to often, how that John said, Hereby do we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. So you see that your obedience is directly connected to your knowledge of whether you're even saved or not. We will be most fully conscious of Christ's love for us when we are striving by the grace of the Spirit to be obedient in all things and thus bearing spiritual fruit to the glory of God. On the other hand, carelessness and sin will reduce our assurance and our spiritual vitality to where it may practically disappear altogether. And for the individual that continues in a course of disobedience without repentance, he may well be proving that he is actually not a true branch in the vine at all, but one of those branches described back in verse 6 that is going to be withered and cut off and burned. There are always two ditches that, the, that a Christian can fall, onto on either side, fall into on either side of the road. It's a deadly error to imagine that you are saved by your obedience. That's a deep ditch that you can fall into, the ditch of legalism, imagining that you are contributing to your right standing with God by being obedient But there is also the ditch on the other side of the road in imagining that you can be careless about being obedient to Christ. Because, well, I'm saved. It doesn't matter if I'm obedient or not. I can go sin if I feel like sinning because Christ's blood has already taken care of it. That is just about as dangerous an error as the other. 
Because Christ did not save anybody to leave them living a, a life of reckless sin. He saves us to make us a holy people. And scripture is clear on that. The very passage, passages that talk about election say that we are chosen to be holy and without blame before Him in love. And Christ Himself is the great exemplar of the very truth that He is teaching and which I'm trying uh, to describe to you today. He goes on to say there in verse 10 in the last part of the verse, He presents Himself as the example even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So He's the example and the pattern that we are supposed to be molding ourselves after. Christ was not indifferent about whether He was obedient to the Father's will or not. And if He was, was very strict and very conscientious about being obedient to the Father's will, then we ought to be the same way. The reason that He continued in a constant, uninterrupted sense of the Father's love was because He was walking in obedience to the One that sent Him. That He was constantly teaching that in the Gospel of John. You see Him saying over and over about how He came to do the will of the One that sent Him. It is unthinkable that the impeccable Christ ever even could have disobeyed, but still, as we said concerning ourselves, there is a means to the end. Even if the end is positively inevitable, still there are means and processes that have to be gone through to arrive at that end. And we know that Christ was tempted even as we are tempted. And yet he resisted every solicitation to deviate from the will of his Father. And because he did so, he abode in perfect communion. And at all times enjoyed an abiding sense of the Father's loving presence with him. Now we, to our own lower degree, may do the same if we likewise persevere without straying in a course of holy obedience to the commands of our Lord and Savior. Christ himself, his righteous life, his perfect submission to the will of the Father, his obedience to the Father in all things, that is the pattern that you and I are supposed to be following. Now in verse 11 we see that there is a very practical reason behind all this teaching concerning the necessity of bearing spiritual fruit as well as the injunction to keep Christ's commandments so that we may abide in His love. These are all really just different ways of saying the same thing, encouraging the believer to walk in obedience to Christ in all things. <clears throat> but our own personal joyfulness in the gospel is directly connected to our making a practical use of this teaching concerning our vital union with Christ. If you want to have joy in the Lord, the, the, this is a very important text for you to know and to understand and to make application of in your life. For a Christian to live a life of joyfulness in the Lord. And let me stop here and I'm going to repeat this several times throughout the sermon because it's important we make this distinction. The joyfulness that I'm talking about is a joyfulness that is not necessarily connected to the circumstances of your life. This is a joy that you can have even when you're in a state of great sorrow, in a state of great trial. A believer can have joy in the Lord even while he's sorrowing over extreme difficulties and trials going on in his life. But for a Christian to have a life of joy in the Lord is a privilege of the believing life and it is really necessary for us if we would offer to the Lord the service that he deserves. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And surely we all realize that we can better run in the ways of the Lord when we are rejoicing in his love than we can when we're weighted down by fear and gloom. When we're living in fear and our souls are greatly troubled and distressed, well, it's all that we can do just to keep our heads above water spiritually. We need other people to be helping us rather than us being able to render help to others. To stay in the spiritual doldrums will innervate our ability to serve the Lord as He requires and as He deserves. 
And so Jesus tells us that he gives us all of this invaluable instruction so that his joy might remain in us and that our joy might be full. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. So if you want to be a joyful believer, then it is necessary that you have at least some modicum of understanding of what Jesus is teaching here. There is a good deal of discussion as to whether the two mentions of joy in this verse are two separate joys or different ways of expressing the same thing. I think that both sides can make a reasonable case for their perspective, and it's not a matter of a very great consequence, whichever position you take. Now, we do know that the Hebrew mind was very used to parallelisms, particularly from the poetic portions of the Old Testament. If you go and read in Psalms and Proverbs in particular, and you'll see it in Job somewhat as well, you'll have a verse that uh, many times that you have just two different ways of saying the same thing. They'll have the first clause and then the second clause, and you look at them and you say, well, it looks like they're both saying the same thing. Well, that's because they're both saying the same thing. It's just a poetic way of expressing the same truth in a different form. So that's not an uncommon thing and certainly would not have been uncommon uh, in, uh, in the minds of, of either Jesus or his disciples growing up in the culture that they did in a, a Hebraic culture and that their minds saturated with the Old Testament. So for Jesus to mention joy twice in verse 11 and to be talking about the same joy in the two different separate mentions, that would not uh, at all be unsurprising. So from that perspective, it would be saying that Christ's joy that remains in us is our fullness of joy. But I think we can take a little different angle of looking at it. The scripture does speak of the Lord Jesus Christ experiencing joy in himself. So I think that there is at least some good reason to conclude that the first clause where he says, my joy remaining in you, there is good reason to conclude that that refers to the joy that he finds in his people. And that's an extraordinary and encouraging thought. We do often find uh, uh, references to the joy that our Lord Jesus experienced in the, uh, in the scriptures. For instance, in that great messianic 45th Psalm, it talks about uh, the Messiah being anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows. Psalm 45 verse 7, it's a recited for us in uh, Hebrews chapter 1 as well. The Bible often speaks of God rejoicing over his people to do them good. We want to guard ourselves against thinking of our God as being just basically an unemotional supercomputer, a, a, a robotic type, uh, type figure who ha experiences no emotions at all. We have to make the very important distinction that God is never controlled by any emotions that he experiences. He is above that. He is not ever controlled and dictated to by his emotions as we so often are. But the scripture speaks so many times of God rejoicing over his people to do us good. Zephaniah 3.17 goes so far as to say that God joys over his people with singing. Hebrews 12 and verse 2, speaking directly of Christ, says that he endured the shame of the cross for the joy that was set before him. Therefore, I think we can conclude that no small part of the joy that Christ finds in his people, if indeed he is speaking of there in the first clause of the joy that he finds in us, I think that there's good reason to think that he is, he finds joy in us when, through our union with him, we bear the fruits of love and faith and obedience towards God and for his glory. That rejoices the heart of our Lord and Savior, and that should be a tremendous incentive to us to be diligent in our obedience, to give joy to the heart of our Lord and Redeemer. It is an astonishing thought to consider that we, as weak and sinful as we are, can actually bring joy to the heart of the King of Kings, the one who only has immortality and dwells in the light that no man can approach unto, who is so 
glorious and so far above us, and yet he even rejoices in us when we are obedient to him, when we mortify sin, when we show love towards our brethren, when we uh, resist temptation, all the different ways in which we obey the Lord, that brings joy and rejoicing and gladness to his heart. I think that that is contained in the verse that we're looking at here in verse 11. And besides bringing joy to our Lord, there is a benefit for ourselves as well. Not only will Christ's joy remain in us, meaning that his joy that he has in us will be communicated to us, by that means our joy will be made full. He rejoices in our obedience and we rejoice as we receive of his joy and of his grace being ministered to us. There is a very definite connection here between obedience and joy. We cannot know the joy of the Lord when we are careless and disobedient. That thing is impossible. No true Christian can be happy in the spiritual sense of which our Lord speaks here when he is out of step with the Lord. In fact, uh, the teaching that we have had over the last couple of months about grieving the Spirit, uh, what is that except telling us that the Spirit of God is going to make us miserable by withdrawing from us until we repent of our sin and get back in fellowship with Christ? But when we are doing that, which we are instructed to do in this chapter, abiding in Christ and bringing forth much fruit to the glory of God, keeping Christ's commandments and abiding in his love, then we possess a joy that the world cannot offer. This joy, again, is one that transcends even our current circumstances, and thus it it enables the believer to rejoice in his Lord even when life itself is filled with sorrows and heartache. You can still know the joy of the Lord when you are continuing to walk in faith and continuing to walk in obedience towards the Lord as you go through those trials, as painful as they are, and it's not going to, uh, it's not going to re- eradicate all of the painfulness of your circumstances, but you can have joy at the same time that you're experiencing pain, because your joy is not in yourself, it's in the Lord and in His grace towards you. <clears throat> now once again in verse 12, our Lord Jesus comes back to the theme of which he first introduced to us back in chapter 13 as his great commandment, and that is to love one another. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So he repeats that new commandment, that great commandment. The Puritans sometimes called it the 11th commandment. This is at the heart of all practical Christianity, and we ignore it only at the peril of our souls. In verse 10, he spoke of his commandments, and now he reduces it down to the one commandment that was nearest and dearest to his own heart. Jesus himself was always animated by a fervent love, both for God his Father, first and foremost, but then for the people that he came to save. And that's always the way that it's supposed to be. Love to God first, love to your neighbor second. And there's no contradiction between those two, of course, because if you're loving God, then you're going to be loving your neighbor. Now, Jesus wants to see that same principle being actuated in his disciples. If we are to bear fruit unto God, as he has been describing, then this is where it begins and ends, and that is in our love for one another. Now, here again, we, as I've often said, it needs to be repeated because there's so much false doctrine out there. When I say, when I say something like this, I do not mean that now, now we can ignore the Ten Commandments and the law of God and all the other instruction of the New Testament and all we have to do is love. Well, you have to know what love is. And how do you describe and define love? Well, when you research that subject and that topic in the New Testament, what you find is that, is that love is the fulfilling of the law. So that doesn't mean you get to ignore thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, honor your parents, don't lie, don't covet. 
When you're obeying those commandments, that's when you're loving as, as you're supposed to love. To know how to practice God's commandments is to know how to love, and to love is to practice God's commandments. We took three sermons to detail what it means to keep Christ's new commandment in, when we went through chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. If you missed those sermons, they're available on Sermon Audio if you want to go back and refresh your mind on that. I'm not going to go over all of those things again now. But Christ introduces it again to emphasize how important love for one another is in the matter of honoring Him. You can't bear fruit unto God if you don't take the matter of loving Christ's people very, very seriously. There is no mystery now as to what He means when He speaks of us abiding in Him and of bearing fruit to God's glory. If we are connected to Him as branches to the vine, we are going to love what He loves and we are going to love who He loves. That's why we're always very concerned about people who say that they are Christians and have little interest in the church and little interest in the lives of their fellow believers. Because if you're connected to Christ, He was all about His people. He was all about the gathering of His people with Him. He lived His life for those who believe in Him. And we are supposed to be following after His pattern. If you're a believer, the life that you live by the grace of God is to be a life of loving the Lord's people. That's the fruit that God most desires to see. And that is what is going to be produced in you if you are connected to Christ, the living vine. Now verse 13, what is the love our Lord desires to see from us? Well, it's described in a very striking fashion. A verse probably we're all familiar with. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. A self-sacrificial love. So you see that when the Bible talks about love, it's not a vague sentimentality. I had a discussion with a guy uh, online here a while back uh, trying to get to some kind of conclusion with him about what the Bible means when it talks about love. And this man was so slippery that he uh, ended up saying, love isn't about definitions. We don't even want to define love. We just want to love. Well, that's completely ridiculous. You can't... You can't know what anything means if you can't have a definition of it. What does it mean? Uh, every word has to have some kind of definition. And we want to define love the way the Bible defines it, not the way Hollywood defines it. So if the love that Jesus is talking about is a love that means laying down your life for others, that's not mere vague sentimentality. That's something that is going to have very practical expressions in our daily lives. The kind of love most people talk about is the refusal to challenge another's wayward behavior or even to champion them in their behavior and to celebrate their behavior even if it's contrary to God's, God's law. That's what men, most people are talking about now when they talk about love. That's what even many alleged Christians seem to be very content with. That's never what the Bible is talking about when it talks about love. In fact, if you go back and read, read that sec great section on love in the law of God in Leviticus 19, when it talks about loving your neighbor, it says you will in any wise rebuke your neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. That's one of the ways that you express your love for your fellow man is by when he sins against you or when you see him involved in some serious sin, you don't just say, well, that's his lifestyle and I'm going to love him by celebrating his lifestyle. No, you rebuke him and say, brother, you can't do this. This is against God's commandments. Come back into obedience. Repent of your sin. So when we talk about loving the people of God, we must not be satisfied just to form some image in our mind of the people of God, work up a good feeling about them, and then think that we've done everything that's required of us because we have a positive feeling within us about whoever it is that's God's people. 
That's not what's required of you to obey Christ's command to love as he loved us. That's not all that Jesus did. He didn't just exercise a good feeling about his disciples and the people who believed in him. He did things for them. He lived a life of concrete action towards his fellow men and particularly towards his believing people. He himself states in words and then he exemplified in his own person what it means for us to love one another. Remember what we taught when we went through the great commandment back in chapter 13 that the standard that Jesus sets for us in this new commandment is actually an even higher standard than what the law demanded. The law says love your neighbor as yourself and that's so high a standard that not a single one of us has lived up to it. But Jesus takes it up a notch even above that and says don't just love your neighbor as yourself but love as I have loved you. That's an even higher standard than loving your neighbor as yourself. That love with which Jesus loved us was not a mere sentimental love, but it was a love that was expressed in him laying down his very life for us in all of the horrors of the cross, that dreadful cup which he drank that we spoke of last Sunday in preparation for the Lord's Supper. That is the love that he describes for us here in the 13th verse. Now he does not specifically say here that the love uh, that drives a man to lay down his life for his friend is the love that he is about to express, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't mention his coming sacrifice of the cross, whether the disciples who were there listening to him understood that he himself was going to be the supreme example of this kind of love, I don't know. There is still a great deal of confusion in their minds, and even though Jesus had told them what was going to occur in Jerusalem, we know that they were still very foggy, uh, to put it mildly, about what was going to transpire. But in hindsight, and living after the cross and the great events of the crucifixion, who among us can read these words without seeing that it is pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ, the great apostle and high priest of our faith? After all, the very principle that he is building upon is to love as he loved us. And if it was not clear to his disciples in the moment as he was speaking, it would become abundantly clear to them after they saw him offer himself as an offering and a sacrifice to God on our behalf. But what we do need to recognize and what we need to remember as we ponder this and uh, something that we can come back to and reflect upon periodically throughout our Christian lives is that when Jesus says, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends, this is not a verse that's just stuck in the Bible to extol the love of Christ for us. Now, that's part of the reason why it's here, and it certainly would not be harmful for a preacher to take a text like this and preach a sermon simply about the great love of Christ, his self-sacrificing love. But there's more in this text than just that. We must remember that in this context, he is not so much talking about his love for us as teaching us how we ought to love, teaching us what it looks like for us to bear fruit unto God. That's what this chapter is about, is what is going to be produced in us through our vital union with him and what is going to be produced in us is that we are going to love as he loved. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. <coughs> our love for Christ's people should be of such a nature that we are willing to put ourselves down, put ourselves second, to humble ourselves for their benefit, to think more highly of them than we think of ourselves. Boy, that's a hard one. We don't, we don't, we don't ever want to do that. We always want to put ourselves a notch above everybody else in importance and in usefulness. But that's not how we as Christians are supposed to think. Let every man esteem other better than themselves. Themselves. We are to give even sacrificially for their welfare when the need so requires. 
This isn't just something we're supposed to do for our own personal family, but for all of the Lord's children. Our true family in this world is not necessarily the people that we're connected to by blood or marriage, but it is the people of God, the people who are redeemed by the blood of Christ. That blood, the people secured by Christ's blood, they are to be of even more importance in our lives than our own blood family. It is easy to speak of these things in the theoretical, but to answer the call when it comes is altogether different. I don't like having to have my routine interrupted to go help a fellow believer any more than you do. It aggravates me, it, it uh, upsets me, and uh, we just don't like it. We don't enjoy those kinds of things. But those are very practical ways in which the Lord is testing whether we're going to love His people or not. <clears throat> if we are connected to Christ the vine, we will bear the fruit that flows from His life. He Himself laid down His life for His friends. And actually, uh, you go and read in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 10, Jesus didn't just lay down his life for his friends. He laid down his life for people who were actually sinners and enemies. Those are the terms used to describe us in Romans 5. So we have become Christ's friends through the grace of God. And we'll uh, look more at that, God willing, next week when we come to verse 14. But the only reason we are Christ's friends is because he redeemed us and reconciled us to God when we were once enemies. Now, we do understand, I trust, that our love for the brethren is not at all meritorious or saving as his was. So when we say that we are following the pattern of Christ when he laid down his life on the cross, certainly we recognize that when we demonstrate love towards the brethren, we are not making any kind of sacrifice for sin in the sense that Christ was. But rather, our love for the brethren is a blessed imitation of the same spirit that drove him to the cross, a spirit that says that, The welfare of my brethren is of more importance than my own comfort and ease and pleasure. It is a love which manifests itself in acts of kindness and sacrifice for the benefit of our brethren. And in that sense, it is an imitation of the master. It is the fruit being borne by the branches that that comes from the vine. The vine bears this fruit and now he produces it in the branches. So we have considered today then joy and love and tried to examine the connection between them. And I trust that you see that in the Christian life, our joyfulness and our love are very directly connected. The joy of which Christ speaks is not a joy that is necessarily connected to our outward circumstances. You may have very painful, very sorrowful circumstances going on in your life. Family problems, death of loved ones, all sorts of things that can upset our tranquility. That feeling of happiness that you experience when you get engaged to somebody you love or somebody gives you a wonderful expensive gift or when you have a new child welcomed into the family or the pleasure that some people sadly find in sin, actually we all do until the Lord changes our hearts, that's not the kind of joy of which Christ is speaking here. There's actually a difference between happiness as we normally think of it and joy. Happiness for us usually we're just thinking about the feeling we experience when something positive happens But joy is something that can transcend even our circumstances. As I've been saying, you can still be be rejoicing in the fact that God has saved you and redeemed you in the blood of Christ even while you're sorrowing over the terrible things that are happening in your life. God's people have experienced joy under the most adverse circumstances. And really, as far as I can see, it's the universal testimony of Christians. Uh, Almost every time you read about a Christian who has really suffered for the Lord they practically all agree that they never experienced so sweetly the joy of communion with their Lord as when they were under fierce persecution from the agents of wickedness. 
John G. Payton, a great missionary to some of the worst savages in the world in the South Sea Islands. Uh, at one point, he was hiding up in a tree. Uh, one of the friendly natives had told him that uh, one of the tribes was out to get him and to kill him. They wanted to, to murder him, cook him, and eat him. And he was hiding in a, in a palm tree trying to uh, save his life from these murderous people. And he could hear them out running and shouting, looking for him, trying to find him. He said he never enjoyed such great communion with the Lord as he enjoyed up hiding in that palm tree that night. And I know the man is a Roman Catholic, but for a contemporary Example, this man that was in the news recently that the, the FBI sent in a, uh, very disgracefully sent in a SWAT team to arrest a pro-life father of seven children. And he was a man who participated in trying to keep people from having abortions. And he, basically all he did was shove somebody who was getting up in his, uh, his young son's face uh, there outside the abortion, abortion clinic. And the local authorities said there was nothing to be done about it. But our uh, wonderful attorney general sent an FBI SWAT team in to arrest this man and put him on trial. And thankfully, he was exonerated very quickly by the jury. But he himself said that he never felt so much peace and, and joy as when he was sitting there in the prison shackled but for having shoved somebody who was, uh, who was abusing his son. Well, uh, that's the kind of thing that we ought to recognize, is that when we are walking most closely with the Lord and even suffering for His sake, that's oftentimes when the Lord draws nearest to us and grants us the most of His comfort and of His presence. So let it be established in our minds that our joy as believers will be directly connected to our obedience and particularly to the practice of Christian love. If we are selfish, if we are stingy, if we are self-seeking, if we are quarrelsome, if we hold grudges and bitterness in our hearts, if we, forgive, if we refuse to forgive those who have wronged us, especially if the person has asked for forgiveness, you can't officially extend forgiveness to somebody who's still in an attitude of hatefulness towards you, but you don't have to carry bitterness and grudges and anger in your heart towards that person. All of these kinds of attitudes are directly contrary to the whole spirit of what Christ has taught us. So what I would recommend is that if, if you are hearing this sermon today and you're thinking, well, I'm not experiencing much joy in the Lord. I, I'm, I want to know more of that, but I'm really not having much of it. Well, it may be a good time for self-examination and to ask yourself, am I harboring grudges and bitterness in my heart towards a, one of my fellow men, somebody uh, among my circle of acquaintances? Am I refusing to forgive somebody that has asked for forgiveness? Don't expect the Lord to draw nigh and grant you joy and uh, spiritual joy when you're in direct disobedience to him. Forgiveness, refusal to hold grudges, these are commandments of the Lord. This is the way that we love our fellow men and particularly our fellow believers. When we love our fellow believers as he loved us, and when we strive even to love our enemies and to do good to those who have mistreated us, then our Lord will rejoice in us because he delights in nothing more than to see his people being serious about the matter of obeying him. If you want to experience the joy of the Lord, then live your life in such a way as will bring Him joy. When He see, we all have, we who have children, we know what it is. And when we see our children being obedient and living the living the kind of way that we want them to to live, that rejoices our hearts and makes us very happy. We're not very happy when we see them being disobedient and rejecting the principles that we've been trying to instruct them in. But if you know what it is to rejoice because your children are obeying the principles that you've laid down before them, then you know that Christ rejoices in us as well when he sees us being obedient, bearing fruit to the glory of, of God. Even if the circumstances of our lives are sorrowful and painful, yet we may still experience a deep, precious, abiding joy if we are walking in the love of Christ 
and manifesting that love towards others. The joy of knowing that our sins are forgiven, that we are the sons of God and heirs of heaven, this will transcend any of the troubles that we may have, family troubles, disease, even death itself. So let us learn to walk in love, and as we do so, we will know fullness of joy through Christ's joy remaining in us. Let's close this service with a word of prayer, and then we'll have our men's prayer meeting. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this teaching, how important and how necessary it is for us. Help us to bear these things in mind. Lord, teach us to be loving towards our, uh, all of our fellow men insofar as we can and to have a spirit of, uh, of great graciousness towards them and even of pity for those who are lost and living in wickedness and rebellion, knowing that we ourselves would be in that exact same state except you had shown mercy upon us and had redeemed us and re- regenerated us by your Holy Spirit. Help us to walk in love even towards those uh, who may not necessarily deserve it and help us to live in such a way as that we may bring joy to our Lord and Master and that we may receive of his joy and walk in it all the days of our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.